Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, the host and producer. This food and wine show is being brought to you directly from Paris, France. Here, we give you a taste of this delicious world with all its colorful and diverse personalities that make up the Paris culinary landscape. So, sit back and relax and enjoy Paris good food and wine. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at IOT shipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Here we are already at the end of the third week of January in our brand new year 2019. Here in Paris, the Christmas decorations are still up all over the city. I find this rather comforting, this reluctance to let go of the festive season. It's like the French forestall the descent into the darkest, coldest days of winter that are January and February for as long as they can. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine starts off by bringing you a nice dram of whiskey. I take you into the hidden treasure cellars that are Golden Promise Whiskey Bar. This bar is not so much a bar, but more like a universe of whiskey many of which are rare collector's items from all over the world. We have a sit-down interview with Francois Perrieu, the establishment's director. His modest demeanor belies his vast knowledge and even greater passion for these whiskeys. Then, we turn to an unusual and somewhat exotic restaurateur-chef duo, Alex Kogan and David Giloni, who, together, represent Italy, Thailand, Russia, and the USA. Their newish restaurant, in the Marais, Le Foodies, is fun, inventive, and offers original dishes of Thai-Italian fusion. They've also spent a fair bit of time curating their informed wine list, selecting excellent bottles from Italy, Argentina, and of course, France, that pair so nicely with their cuisine. So sit back and relax as we bring you this warm and cozy edition of Paris Good Food and Wine. And for those of you interested in trying to recreate one of these whiskey cocktails, head on over to our show notes at localfoodandwine.wordpress, where we've included a whiskey cocktail recipe that you can try at home. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter at Paris Food Wine, where there'll be a link to the show notes. Leave a review of the show and share us on your social media if you like what you hear and the people we feature. Donc je vous souhaite bonne année 2019 et à toutes et à tous, bonne santé.
Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes. So this is actually, I think, my favorite room in the place that you call your universe. I love that word. I'm, I've decided to adopt it from you because this is definitely more than a bar. This is, uh, it's called Golden Promise, and we're here in the basements, um, the cellars of this whiskey universe on Rue Ticton in the very fashionable central area of, of Paris. And this is a real hidden gem. I, I only discovered it about a year and a half ago when I was writing about it for 10 Best, and I instantly I mean, just the the lushness of it and just the expanse of it. But what I'm going to ask you, Francois Perrieux, who are, you are now the director of this whole uh, whiskey universe, I'm going to ask you to try to walk us through the different rooms down here, even past your steel locked door and the, the treasures that await us behind those doors. Um, so... Walking in our bar is somehow working in the the world of whiskey. We we wanted to create different universe because uh, different people can enjoy whiskey in like different ways. So our first part of the bar is actually the the cocktail bar. So we have there between two to three hundred different whiskies, but all these whiskies can be easily found in any good liquor shop or even at the shop at La Maison de Whiskey. So all these whiskies, you can find Scotch, Irish, uh, Bourbon, Japanese whiskies, um, and you can enjoy these whiskies by the glass. But they also worked on a cocktail menu based on these whiskies. So we have... I think it's now around like 35 to 40 different cocktails and all these cocktails are whiskey based cocktails. So for a lot of people whiskey based cocktail is somehow a good way to make a first step into the world of whiskeys because whiskeys can can seem a bit uh, uh, like a difficult drink too too rustic too hard somehow but it is uh, somehow in, in, an opening door to the world of whiskey to to start with the cocktail so you have 35 completely different cocktails if you do like fruity cocktails if you do like smoky cocktails um, you can they can definitely find the, the perfect cocktail that will suit you even if you think you don't like whiskeys that that's for sure so we also have another space that we call the, the collector's space. So it's divided in three different rooms. Uh, the first one is what we call the salon. Uh, so the living room in, in, in English. In the salon, you can enjoy, I think it's around 700 different whiskies. And all those whiskies are not uh, available anymore in, uh, in the market. It's only in the secondary market or in, uh, in spe special retail shops or in auctions, for example. So somehow all these whiskies kind of uh, made the whiskies what it is today. So it's kind of a, our the fuel to our whiskey time machine. It's our liquid history. So we have whiskeys uh, from the 1950s to whiskeys to the early 2000s. And all these whiskeys are made uh, with old uh, method, old techniques. So you can try, I don't know, an, an, an Lafrog, which is one of the most famous whiskeys you can find today. I think a Lafrog 10 years old, 
can find it on any good liquor shop in Paris for, I don't know, 40, uh, 35, 40 euros. But here you can try Lafrog 10 years old from the, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. And all these whiskeys might be the same distillery, the same process, but they will taste completely different from uh, an era to another because the process change, the, the techniques evolve, the, the barley is not the same, the distillation process is not the same. So that made the, this whiskey journey really um, enjoyable if you, if you go a bit deeper than the, the classic version. Next to this salon, we have another room called the Japanese room. So as you expect, it is full of Japanese whiskey. There we have between 250 to 300 different whiskies from Japan. So we have the two main, uh, the, the big classic, which is uh, Nika and Suntory whiskies. They are the two, the two big players when you talk um, about Japanese whiskey. But we also have a, a bit more confidential whiskies, such as a Mars Distillery. Akashi, Chichibu, which is now probably the, how to say, the, the, um, the new player, but that's, the, that's like the, the whiskey everyone wants to try. It's a micro distillery, so they produce in, I don't know, in a year what uh, the big players produce in a, like two, three days. So it's a really small production, uh, but everything is handmade. The products are completely crazy it's usually young whiskies but with an amazing an amazing complexity for the, the for, for its age and we also have closed distillery such as uh, Hanyu and Karuizawa which is which the prices are getting completely out of hands right now and we are really happy because that far it's we have one of the the biggest collection of this whiskies by the glass and next to this room, we have the last one, what we call the, uh, the bottle keep, the, the place we are right now. So we have this special offer here at the bar when we, you, call, you can actually buy uh, a bottle of collector's whiskey. And of course, you can bring this bottle back home with you, but we can also store it here in a private salon. And uh, you store it in your own locker, you have your own key, we keep it for you. And then you can come enjoy a glass of your bottle alone with, with your friend whenever you want. Um, that's that's pretty much it well thanks so much for walking us through i mean when you know when you're talking about these whiskeys i feel like i'm in the alibaba's den of whiskey you know with like these treasure really these absolute treasures and i you mentioned a quick anecdote right before we started uh recording tell me again about the collector's whiskey that just sold uh, last week or two weeks ago or something like that so the collectors whiskey now are getting a bit um a bit um, unbelievable the, the few years ago about 10 years ago you can get a really special bottle for a couple hundreds euro you can get a, an old bottle of macallan or as i just told you karizawa and ohanyu like the closed distillery now some of this bottle um selling for 10, 20, 100,000, and there is this special bottle of Macallan I, I told you um, um, a, a bit ago. Uh, 1926, 60 years old, was sold for over a million pounds. So this is the kind of whiskey you don't drink anymore. This is the kind of whiskey you have on your wall as a Picasso or the Ferrari you will never drive on your garage. The, the whiskey now has been collected and uh, not drunk anymore. 
So that really made our place so special because every bottle we have here uh, is here to be open, is to be drink. So we have bottle that people just has been dreaming of drinking, but basically no one can afford this bottle anymore. And the the price of our of a dram of a glass can be can be high sometimes. It goes uh, a bit over three hundred euros for a glass but for that price you can actually have a few drops for a whiskey that worth sometimes more than thirty thousand euros for a bottle so you you can actually drink some legend and some whiskey that you will probably never find open anymore so that's that makes it really special for us yeah so yeah so the words that that you've used like universe and other words coming to mind are kind of like an art gallery or collector's den or yeah this is just really phenomenal now it seems like one of the reasons I mean so I don't I'll you know I'll be the first to admit I know nothing about whiskey my my dad my dad still likes to drink whiskey so does my brother and I know here in France what's so interesting is that the you know you French are really like the biggest whiskey market I think in the world I think you're even more than Americans which is really funny because us we Americans we drink more cognac than you do so it's kind of like the inverse we each each of us likes what the other one's got which works I guess very well (laughs) in terms of trade trade and commerce and so that kind of brings me to another aspect of this very deep-rooted and as you're describing such a profound experience of whiskey and why you can you know have such uh a massive array of choice here and not just choice but as you, you know we've been saying gems and that is I you know your link with the Maison du Whisky go into that a little bit you know for me because I know that you know they're I guess the biggest importer here in France of whiskey so La, La Maison du Whisky who opened the bar um, has been in business for more than 60 years uh, now and uh, has been uh, one of the um, the biggest company, the biggest importer and distributor uh, of whiskeys, but also also spirits. We we have a lot of rums, cognac, gin, also, uh, but whiskey is still the main uh, the main business. La Maison Whiskey actually owns the the bar, and uh, it's a really good way for us to make actually our product to, to give our real life to our product has a retailer or as an importer you sell stuff to people but you only sell inert stuff sell bottle you you never see people drinking what you are selling them so having this bar you can actually feel how the people live and enjoy your product so the golden promise was also an eye for us on our product and and another reason was that was finally a possibility for us to interact directly with our product and the people like them. So on the the cocktail side, there was a, a way to see how the people react to the fact that we will actually mix really good whiskey to something else. Because here in France, we are really attached to don't mix you don't put ice cubes on your wine you don't do this on your foie gras you, there is a lot of don't in france and mixing whiskey was also a big taboo for a while so except 90 percent of the whiskey that has been drinking in france is probably mixed with coke in in uh, clubs and stuff like this 
But when you come to good whiskies, people are really, really um, serious about it. The no ice cubes, uh, no, uh, don't serve it uh, chill or anything. And we actually wanted to prove people like a way to make a good cocktail was just to use a good whiskey at first. So this is one of the reasons we also wanted to open the bar. And I, as I just told you before, opening this bar was also a really good opportunity for us to make the collector's whiskey alive again. The collector's whiskey is not something you just put on a shelf and look every day and say, oh, I, I have this 2,000 euros bottle and it looks super great in my, in my living room, you know. We wanted to crack this bottle and to, to drink it and to, to see the look on people's face when they were drinking something 60 years old or something from 1937 or something like this. And this is definitely priceless, at least for me. I'm not talking for the company, but for me it is. Yeah. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. Contact them at iotshipping.xyz. IOT, the Internet of Things. Well, that's perfect, Francois, because that was actually, that's the next thing I wanted to lead into because you're, I mean, you're a young man and the only context I know you in is, is through, you know, Golden Promise, this wonderful universe of whiskey. So I'm very curious, how did you get on this path and how did you, you know, how long has it taken you to become so knowledgeable about, I mean, you know, you're talking here, 300 references in one room of just Japanese whiskey, you know, 700 references in, you know, in another room. So, I mean, this is, I'm just thinking as you're speaking, I'm thinking in your head, you must have like 1,500 <laughs> whiskey producers or something. So, I mean, how did you get to this point? What brought you into your passion for whiskey? Well, to, to, to start, I'm from, I'm from Brittany. So, as you know, there is the, this is the, the Celtic side of uh, France. And uh, just, uh, or just like uh, Irish, uh, we are really known to be people who likes to drink and people who like to party. So, this is probably what's like, give me the, not my love for, for whiskeys, but there uh, actually I met um, this amazing, knowledgeable and uh, amazingly kind um, people. Um, they were having uh, a small um, wine and liquor shop in, uh, in Brittany, a couple miles uh, from my parents' house. And uh, whenever I had uh, some free time, I was driving there and uh, he was from uh, England and she was from France. And uh, so we were talking about wine, about whiskeys. So we were having whiskey tasting, you know, just few drops of this, few drops of that. And it was actually the first that made me try good whiskeys. My, my first love for whiskey were actually when I bought my first bottle of Lagavulin 16 years old. This is a whiskey you can find basically anywhere in France. So I bought it myself and I, I made my, uh, my first um, whiskey tasting myself with this. And uh, when I actually got interested in whiskey, I, I met this guy and he just made me fall in love with whiskey by trying Irish whiskeys, Welsh whiskeys, bourbon, all these kind of things. And then I had the chance to, uh, to study in Japan. So I, I lived there for a bit more than three years. So when I were in Japan as a student, I didn't have uh, much more money. So I never really went to the whiskey bars because um, this is definitely more pricey than uh, having, having a beer in a pub or something like this. Uh, so I didn't really explore the Japanese whiskey bar at the time. 
And now I feel really, really, really bad about this because this guy have clearly like the best whiskey bars in, in the world. Um, but when I when I, I got back, I, I work in the wine industry. I, I actually, I, I got back after the, this terrible earthquake. Went back in France, I decided to go for a sommelier degree. So I, I, I did a sommelier, um, like a express uh, course for, for a year or something like this. But still with some whiskey in, a, in my head. So I work in the wine industry for a couple of years and I keep uh, drinking whiskey on the side and uh, reading uh, blogs and um, watching like channels and everything that could definitely basically talk about whiskeys like documentary or anything. And and then I actually I, I just uh, find the, um, on the La Maison du Whiskey shop, I was actually buying some whiskey online from them and I found this uh, recruitment, recruitment uh, page so um, I click, I send a resume and they call me the next morning and I had actually a, um, a meeting a few days after that. And the next week I was working for Amazon Whiskey. So that, that's that's it. <laughs> yeah, That's a great story. I mean, if it were if it were a romance, it would be like a love at first sight kind of a story, I suppose. But it's also it also I guess it kind of shows. I mean, when you're really passionate about something, you manifest that, you know, you make you make that that come true but you know obviously you put a lot of dedication in and I can understand why you'd feel bad about not going to a lot of whiskey bars while in Japan but I mean lord knows being a student in Paris is is you know is tough enough on people but being a student in Japan because it's so darn expensive so I'm sure anyone would understand your your plight at that instance. So, okay, so let's just um, to kind of to wrap this back up. And like I mentioned, you know, I reached out to you just thinking, well, whiskey is a great kind of a, it's a great drink for the wintertime. And it's so, it's so cold, you know, January, February, March are like the coldest months. Well, at least January and February anyway. But then um, as I was walking over here, I thought I realized to myself, and as I walked in upstairs, I thought, yeah, oh, this is cocktail week. <laughs> it's a, starting a co- cocktail week, um, you know, here in Paris. So what if people are listening, you know, to the show and they're, they happen to be in Paris, what kind of things are you guys doing for, for cocktail week? Well, well, I guess you have to come to, to see. Uh, so they, they have made uh, two special recipes for the occasion. And uh, I think there will be a, a masterclass also. But you can find all the information about the bar and the, the old program on the, um, the website of the Paris Cocktail Week, I think, because I'm not sure about the timing and the time schedule of it. But you can find anything on our on their website, yeah. And on a few days, we will also post on Facebook and Instagram a bit more information about it. Okay, so um, so Paris Cocktail Week. And then also, I would imagine if you're mentioning your Instagram, how can we find you? Because I know I mentioned Rue Tiquiton at the, at the start of the interview, but not everybody knows Paris like the back of their hand. So how do people... How do people find you if they don't know right off the top of their head where Ruti Katon is? The the easiest way to find us will be to go. We are only 100 meters ago from the metro Etienne Marcel. But the easiest way is will be to um, the Châtelet Le Hall station. And you go a bit north of it. You Rutikton is um, really close to the um, one of the main streets, which is called Rue Montorgueil, which is a really famous spot in Paris because there is a lot of restaurant, uh, wine wine shops, 
um, if you do like food and like drinking and eating, this is definitely a, a place to to start visiting Paris. With, yeah. Okay, that that was such a wonderful response because it was so Parisian. But let let's try it this way. How about if we're in the digital world? <laughs> We find you. <laughs> um, so it couldn't be more easy. It'd just go for a Golden Promise Whiskey Bar on Instagram. And I think it's actually pretty much the same for Facebook. So yeah, Golden Promise Whiskey Bar. No spaces yet. Great. Thank you so much, Francois. I really appreciate you taking the time. And the setting couldn't be more magical. I, I mean, I'm looking at sapphire-colored velvet upholstered easy chairs backed by these huge barrels, whiskey barrels, obviously, behind glass. One of them is painted um, very artistically. And then on the left, there's this whole two walls full of personal rare gem whiskey bottles that are owned by people who come in like whenever they want and they use this room to have a little drop of their whiskey. Is that right? Yes, exactly. All the, the all the bottle we have around us are owned by um, our customers, so we are not allowed to say who they are. <laughs> but uh, the only thing we can say they all have really good uh, taste for whiskeys. Yeah. All right. So thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at ParisFoodandWine.net. Thank you for listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. IoT Shipping. IoT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the transport process. Data is monitored by temperature, geolocation, and movement so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes.
All right, so David and Alex, you guys are the new owners, well, chef and owner and chef owners of the foodies here in the Marais. You guys are friends from a cooking school, a famous cooking school here in Paris. But you know, what's really interesting, I think, here is the fact that you run the spectrum. You are doing, David, you are doing Thai, <laughs> Italian uh, fusion food, and Alex, you're American with a Russian background. Okay. So let's hear from David for a second. You prepared, um, so the table uh, just behind you has had an extraordinary meal today. And I wanted you to maybe just uh, explain a little bit about what that meal was, because it seemed to be very fusion-oriented. So today we prepare um, a tartare of the tuna tartare to get a little bit of um, Asian influence. We dress with the fish sauce, coconut, ginger, lime, and coriander. But the particular of this dish is um, the sauce uh, of accompaniment was a burrata infused with coconut. That was this, the, the something more, I think, of the dish. We continue with some um, tortelloni filled with sap and Saint-Jacques That was very classic. When we're talking about pasta, because I grew up in Italy, and for me it's like something like, you know, you don't need to mix it too much that. I, so I, I like to keep it uh, very, very simple as a tradition. We just put some coriander to get a little bit more exotic, but not to, not, you know, not to complicate the dish. And we finish with the Iberico pork. We marinate with Iberico pork with cumin, soya sauce for all night long. And we grill. Uh, the part of the pork is the pluma. It's a very fatty part on the neck of the pork. It's a very prestige piece of the pork. And we serve with some quinoa, some kimchi, kimchi, and the sauce is a penang sauce. Penang sauce is a famous curry from Thailand, and it's my mom's recipe from my grandmother of generation. Yeah, that, that's all, I think. One of the beautiful things about Paris, I think people think about French food here in Paris, but actually, in fact, I think it's becoming, quickly becoming, along with Singapore and New York, one of the most internationally infused flavor cities of the world. What do you have to say about that, Alex? Well, I would agree with that, simply because um, I've been to New York, I've been to Singapore, and obviously we live here in Paris. I would say that, okay, Singapore is probably the most um, fusion place I've ever been to because uh, there are so many influences from so many countries. But Paris is, uh, is like you said, it's becoming, it's becoming very close to Singapore because it's, um, it's bringing all the chefs from all over the world uh, lots of Asian chefs, actually, that cook uh, not only French cuisine, but, uh, you know, they bring, they bring their own cuisine and also different kind of influences. In fact, it's very interesting to see because in, uh, in Paris right now, you have uh, uh, Italian cuisine, Italian chefs cooking French food. You have uh, French chefs cooking Japanese food. You have Japanese chefs cooking French food. So, like, all those different mixes that you wouldn't expect, it's happening here in Paris right now. I believe that Paris was lagging behind maybe other places in Europe like Barcelona for a little bit, but now it's catching up and it's, uh, well, it's always been a mecca for foodies, but now I think it's, uh, it's truly becoming a place where you can taste any kind of food and it's, uh, it's very well prepared. It's good quality. And obviously in France you have uh, access to the best ingredients in the world, which is part of the reason why we decided to open a restaurant here. 
So you guys kind of just touched on two things. First of all, your name. I mean, foodies, that's such a, it's like, I think it's an instantly recognizable name, especially in this area in the Marais, which is, you know, historically very international. You're right, you're right next to your right, not even off of, you're right next to the Rue des Archives, which has become the new, uh, Avenue Montaigne of Paris in terms of all the upscale boutiques and the very fashionable district. So two things. How did you guys come up with your name? And then also, so we've already established that you've met at a, at a cooking school, but how did you guys decide to partner? Cause from what I understand, partnering on a restaurant is not really the easiest thing to do. Let's go to you, David. Actually, like uh, we meet the school and uh, we're traveling a lot together. I believe that uh, we have this stuff in common that every like week, 15 days, we we end up in somewhere. You know, as soon as we have two days off, we move. I don't know. We go to Amsterdam, Barcelona, Thailand, also. So, and uh, we both love this, you know, mix of uh, cuisine. We're like We like Thai food, we like Spain food, like, you know, even if you go to Holland, you eat something local from there. Yeah, we meet after, um, he been in, uh, Alex been in another school, like Alma, after, after the Cordon Bleu. And while he was doing stage, we meet at Milano. He was doing star in two-star Michelin restaurant and say like, fuck, yeah. We miss Paris, you know, yes, I miss Paris too, I miss, uh, we should uh, do something together. That, you know, small talking, that's that's how it started. Started to get, you know, it was a small talking after become more serious. <laughs> and now we are here with the restaurant uh, in Paris, yeah. Well, I can uh, add a little bit uh, to that. Well, Le Foodies, I think it's, like David says, it really reflects who we are. And we try to prepare food that we would like to eat, and we believe other foodies would like to eat as well. So we change the menu frequently, basically every month. So every time we go somewhere, every time we travel to a new place, we try something else, and then we come back and we try to improve or try to change our dishes. So it makes it interesting for us, and it makes it interesting for our clients to, you know, to try to eat, to, to see what we come up with, and, you know, compare it to their own experiences. We did meet in Cordon Bleu, which was pretty amazing. I mean, the school is incredible. And uh, there were a lot of foreign, uh, you know, foreign students there. And uh, we always wondered how come uh, not too many students actually uh, realizing their dream of, you know, opening restaurants. And uh, we thought that would be an awesome thing to do. Obviously, after that, David went to work in another restaurant. I went to do my uh, stage in Italy. But after doing stage in Italy, me and David, we... You know, we met, we talked, and uh, one of the topic of conversation was that Paris seems like a perfect place to open uh, open restaurants for two reasons. First, it has access to, like I said, to the best ingredients in the world, which is very difficult to to find. And second, it has uh, it has a lots of foodies, a lots of people local and international who come here to actually try, you know, the food. They they actually travel to to try something new, food wise. Because obviously you go to Paris to you know to see some monuments and uh, sightseeing, but also you you travel for food. So that's that's how we come up with the name foodies and the idea of opening the place in uh, in Paris. But also, like you said, uh, Marais we believe is a perfect place to to open our restaurant because yes, it's uh, our clientele is mostly French, but we do get a uh, good amount of uh, international or foreign visitors, American, British, Australians, uh, Singaporeans, uh, people from Asia nowadays uh, traveling more and more. And like you said, Avenue, uh, Avenue des Archives is, uh, is very popular with uh, p- 
people who go visit boutiques and uh, different kind of quirky stores. So they, they come to it at our place. And in, uh, in a couple of months, uh, we're going to have an amazing um, food store opening right next door called Italy, which already pretty famous worldwide. And uh, I know there are two of them in, uh, in New York. There is one in Boston. I'm sure there are more in like probably there is one in Chicago as well. So uh, we're very excited about that and very excited about people who's going to come and uh, try our food. Absolutely. You're going to be right at the sort of like the center of the Mecca of food here in the in the Marais in, in Paris. I know Italy has been uh, talked about. Yeah, right there. Like he's he's pointing out the window for all the radio listeners. He's pointing out the window to point out at the actual building, which is really just across the street. Thank you for listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. So yeah, you know, I also wanted to touch a little bit on your wine selection because your wine selection is also kind of pushing the boundaries. I mean, your fusion, your Asian-Italian fusion is very interesting. You're coming up with truly creative and original things like the burrata with the uh, coconut cream uh, sauce. That was very, very original. What about your wine list? I know that with your Italian roots, I think your father was Italian, is that it? And your Thai and your mother was Thai. So you have and you also have some natural wine. So let me let me hand it back to David again and then uh, and then can weigh in on both from both of you guys. Uh like the cuisine, the wine needs to reflect the same concept. So our menu is like it's a mix of wine also. We have some wine from Italy. We have some wine from um, South America. We have some Spanish wine, some uh, and of course some French wine because you know you need to have it and uh, they're good. Uh, they're one of the best in the world, I think. So for the natural wine, we keep it like very, very local, like France. But from the normal wine, we like to to play around. So we put a little bit of Argentinian, a little bit of uh, of everything in our. Um, in our wine list, but I think Alex gonna explain you better about this uh, topic. Well, when it's come to wine, we like David says, we look at it the same way as we look at our food. It needs to match the season, it needs to match the kind of menu that we have. So we change the wine also often. Currently, our wine list is uh, consists of, I would say, about thirty different positions that we buy from uh, about eight or nine different suppliers. So we we don't like to go to one company and buy you know most of the wine. We like to really pick and choose. And uh, natural wine, it's something that we started to sell about six months ago. It's it's been a huge success. It's it's becoming very popular in uh, in uh, in Europe, I believe. And uh, obviously there are some some bars that specialize only on selling uh, natural wines. There are some restaurants that specialize on selling natural wines. We're we're not there quite yet, but. Uh, and we're not really looking to be the place that's going to specialize only on natural wines. But we do believe that natural wines bring something else to the table. Something that's parallel with uh, some of our dishes. Uh, obviously, natural wine doesn't have any additives. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's what it sounds. It's natural. And again, we, we spend a long time actually choosing the natural wines. We, like, in our natural wine menu, we have about eight positions. We tasted, I believe, almost 50 or 60 of them just to come up with with this month so it's uh, carefully selected as far as the traditional wines it's uh, it's a good mix of international wines as well as french 
because obviously, you know, in Paris, in France, you have to have a good selection of French wines. Otherwise, you know, what are you doing here? And uh, we have uh, four different types of champagne that we also buy from all different suppliers. Again, it represents different types of uh, champagne region. So you can really pick and choose depending what kind of dish you, you know, you're eating. So uh, we, and again, the, the menu is uh, seasonal. So we change the menu depending on uh, season quite, uh, quite a lot. Like right now, because it's a winter season, we have a lot more red wines. They're a little bit heavier than the one that we serve during summer. So it's, it, it matches our food quite well. Fun. Everything sounds fun, and it sounds like it's thoroughly curated. It's not, it's not like you've made any kind of haphazard choices here. It looks like you've really planned out the menu, chosen the wines. The decor is absolutely gorgeous. The location could not be better. So just to wrap up, by the, t- by the time that this airs, uh, we'll be looking forward towards, say, Valentine's Day. People will probably be looking at trying to make reservations for that, you know, special occasion. What can they look forward to, for example, at your restaurant? Uh, do you, I know, I know I'm asking you to look ahead a little bit from here, but any kind of special occasions, special dishes? Yeah, of course. Um, special event like this, we, there's two fuck because we make a special menu, of course, because it's a special event. And um, we always like super full, super busy in that time of the, the, in that period. So when you have a fixed menu, it's more easy to work and more the quality of the food is going to be better because you already know what, what to give to the people. Uh, you know that the restaurant is going to be full. And for the menu now, I don't really have in mind. <laughs> Because we we like to work season by season, but for Valentine's it's gonna be cold. So I think like meat, some fatty fish like monkfish or halibut. I would say it's season of Saint Jacques also. We also work with season of the um, the fish. Everything have season like meat, vegetable, fish. Uh, like uh, now in December is like very full season of it, the Saint Jacques. That's uh, you don't need. To. The next month's gonna finish, so depends what we're gonna have available on the week before some Valentine's Day, and from there we we usually choose the menu to to give to people ten days in advance. So you really know what what your furnish like supply can give it to you. That's how we do the menu in like in the foodies, very very seasonal. Yes, I guess there is not too much you know to add to the what David said. Uh, Yes, the, the menu is going to be seasonal. We're going to come up with it probably somewhere at the end of January. And, uh, well, I, we believe that our restaurant is perfectly situated. And uh, obviously it's going to be a special event because uh, many people travel for, uh, you know, for St. Valentine's Day to, to Paris. It's a beautiful place to, I guess, celebrate. So, yeah. We have, we used to have some uh, Russian influences like... Uh, uh, there was a season when we used to serve uh, black caviar, and we use some beetroot a lot when it's in season again. But again, our focus is mostly on uh, European foods, I would say French, Italian, with uh, Asian accents. Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much, <laughs> Alex. So, and uh, I know you've been kind of rocking it, so, and it's, you know, right at Christmas time, the height of your busy season. So, thank you very much for taking the time to speak thank to you. Paris Good Food and Wine today. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Hope to see you on the foodies, everybody listening. <laughs> Bye. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. Contact them at iotshipping.xyz. IOT, the Internet of Things. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. A big thank you to all who helped make this show possible. And especially a grand merci beaucoup from me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. You can find this and past episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Paris Food Wine and like us on Facebook at Paris Food and Wine.